Well, I wish you a happy new year. This is a special year, a whole year ahead of us. You know, uh, let me take a personal moment just to say that I am grateful. If I haven't told you recently, I'm going to tell you now, I'm grateful to be your pastor in this place. I'm just, I'm glad to be here. In fact, if you uh, go to our ministers' meeting, many of our ministers' meetings, many at the ministers' Of our minister, my minister friends will say, "You must really think your church is perfect, because all you ever do is talk good about them." And uh, and I'm glad that that they feel that way. Certainly, I feel at this part of my life, I'll just say this to you that I'm thankful that God put us here, and He saved the best for last. Now, for those who just got excited that thinks I'm about to resign. That's not going to happen. If this was a golf course, Eric, I would be. I feel like I'm on the back nine. If you don't like golf, if you prefer football, I don't think I'm in the late fourth quarter, but I think I'm in the late third, early fourth quarter. If you prefer baseball, don't put me in the bottom of the ninth. Put me in the eighth or something, okay? I just know that there's more years behind me than ahead of me, and I'm thankful for where God has positioned me today. In fact, those preachers that, that could think that we're perfect because I say good things and I mean them, but we're not perfect. After all, look who you got as your pastor. We're not perfect. We got our warts. We got our wrinkles. We got our blind spots. But we're doing our best to move forward. I will say this about me personally, is that just because I'm on the back nine doesn't mean that I'm about to let up, give up, or back up. There's much work to be done, much ministry to be done that it involves us. Now I'm going to begin with a confession that I don't have to make. <clears throat> when I come to these, uh, uh, the state of the church, I begin working on it sometime in October. I have this process. Brother Kevin and I talked about it. Now I might should say this, that I'm excited about do you realize that except for the first, like, ten months that I was here, we've been short of our second full-time staff person, and I'm excited about Brother Kevin being here. God sent us our way. I began, he and I have talked about this, I began probably sometime in October preparing for this day because today it's, it's that important. And, and I have this little system where every time God puts a word in my, in my heart, for this day, I will go to a little place and I'll record it so that when I get to this week, I can put it all together. That being said, on Wednesday of this week, I had this message totally uh, uh, ready to go, put to bed, thought I'd review it Friday and Saturday to refine it and be ready. So I'm telling you all that. This is my confession. The storm Friday morning may not have been about you. It may have been about me. God may have sent the weather because he got me off the golf course where I normally spend my Friday mornings, and he put me in my office for about five hours wanting to totally rewrite what I had thought that, that he wanted to say. And in that, lamp, in that vein, I want you to take your Bible with me now, and I want you to turn, first of all, to Matthew 16. Matthew 16. If you have a bulletin, a piece of paper, or even your Bible bookmark, I want you to put that bookmark on Matthew 16 so you can get back to it in just a moment. 
And when you got that bookmarked, then I want you to turn over to Acts 9. Acts 9. I'm going to give you just a second to get there. Acts 9. This is a statement that I want you to remember all year long. This is what I'm beginning with today. Jesus Christ in a life makes a difference. Did you get that? Jesus Christ in a life makes a difference. Jesus Christ in your life makes a difference. It is the difference between being lost and being saved. It is the difference of going to hell versus going to heaven. It is the difference in walking in death or walking in life. It is the difference of just having your life here on earth and pass you by and having the abundant life that Jesus offers you. It's all about Jesus. In fact, the very reason for a church, a Bible-based church to exist is Jesus. It's Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Today in this room, there may be someone who has come in and doesn't have a relationship with Jesus. Uh, You've committed to a lot of things, but you've never committed to a daily personal walk with Jesus. You've committed to a church. You've committed to a religion. You've committed to a tradition. Well, here's what I'm going to say to everybody in this room. If you commit to a church, you will only get what the church can give. If you're committed to a tradition, you will only get what the tradition can give. If you're committed to a religion, you will only get what the religion can give. But if you're committed to Jesus, you'll get what Jesus can give. I, never, I, I don't know anyone who has ever committed to Jesus. And live to regret it. Now, I know people who have committed to churches and traditions and religions, and now they're walking the way of the world because Jesus is the only answer. Jesus is the only answer. If you don't have him, I want to give you an opportunity right now as we begin this year. Would everybody just bow your head and close your eyes? If there is one here who has never had that personal relationship with Jesus, you've never invited Jesus into your life, why not let it start now? As you've bowed your head and closed your eyes, just say, Lord Jesus, I'm the one he's talking about. (laughs) Lord Jesus, I, I have tried so many things. I know I'm a sinner. And I know that my sin separates me from you. And I know that you love me so much that you came and you died for my sin. You prepared a way that I could be forgiven, that you can forgive me. And I ask you to come in and forgive me. Cleanse me. Make me right with you. Make me right with God through you. Give me a home in heaven. Walk with me every day and and lead me. Heavenly Father, if there's been even one person that's prayed that prayer today, I know that you've heard it. And I pray that you will affirm to them that you will walk with them wherever you lead them, wherever they go. And I pray that as we go from this place in a bit, that your leadership will be evident. In Jesus' name, amen. 
somebody in this room, you prayed that prayer, I'll get a chance, hopefully get a chance to speak with you in just a little bit. It was in 1997 in Marietta, Georgia, at the great Russell Street Baptist Church that Dr. Nelson Price stood for his state of the church. And he began the state of the church like this. Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, came to Saul of Tarsus and said, and then he went on to talk about that. What we're going to do is I want us to read that. Acts chapter 9, it'll be on the screen, verse 3 and 4. Hopefully you have your Bible open. This is what it says. Now, it says, as he traveled, that would be Saul, as he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, did you catch that? Me. Why are you persecuting me? It's not going to be on the screen. But if you look back in verse 1, it says that Saul was actually breathing out threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord. Saul was on a mission to shut down the church, and yet Jesus didn't ask, why are you doing it to the church? Why are you doing it to the disciples? Why are you doing it to me? Why in the world? Here's, I'm going to tell you why in the world. Because Jesus takes his church very personally. He takes his church very seriously. It's his church. You see, if you read the New Testament, you find out that the church is, is Jesus' building, it's his body, and it's his bride. You don't mess with a man's bride without paying a cost. It's his building. You see, Jesus... It's the center of the church. The truth be told, please, please listen to me, brothers and sisters. The truth be told, if the church is not about Jesus, it's not a church. Because Jesus is the center of the church. The church, and, and when Jesus becomes the center of a church, things happen. When Jesus is the center of it all, things seem to fall into place. Relationships are strong. Harmony is good. Missions are ongoing. The Spirit is inviting. Other people come because they want to be a part. And hope is everywhere. Why is that? Because when Jesus is the center of the church, the church, now please listen, the church is seen as a place of hope, help, and healing for everyone for time and eternity. That's what a church is. As a director of missions, I struggled all the time when people didn't understand what the church is. Jesus is the center of the church, not the pastor, not programs, not families, not friends, not anything else, but Jesus. And yet too often in the United States of America, particularly in the South, 
That's not how the church is seen at all. So, if this is how Jesus sees the church, let's today consider Matthew 16. Turn back there, if you will, now. Just flip that page back there. Now, I'm picking up in verse 15. But I will tell you that verse 13 and 14 ties along because most of us know this passage. When, when they came into the Caesarea of Philippi, Jesus looked at them and he, this is what he said. He said, who does everybody else say that I am? I want to know what everybody else is saying. After all we've done, what is everybody else saying about me? And they kind of start, guys, you'll appreciate this. They kind of kicked rocks and looked at the sky and looked at the ground. They go, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're one of the prophets. Jesus had had enough of that. And look at the first two words on your, in your Bible. But you. This is no longer about everybody else, but you. He asked them, who do you say that I am? Uh, If you'd have been on that mountain with those guys, you know what I think? This is what I think happened. He goes, okay, guys, but you, who do you say that I am? And I believe there was a pregnant pause. I believe believe there was an awkward silence. As these guys who had spent these years with Jesus tried to form what they thought. Then, of course, Mr. Talker himself says, Simon Peter answered, Mr. Talker, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. I think Jesus turned his attention. He said, Jesus responded, he's, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes. Open our minds. Open our hearts. Speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. As I read that text, there's four things jumped out at me on Friday that I'd never never really put together before. And I'm just going to give them to you in bullet points. Jesus was telling them four things. First of all, he is trying to discern, trying to discern their foundation of faith. He wanted. He not only wanted to know what they said, he wanted to know what it was. He wanted it out in the open. What was their foundation of faith? So you know what he asked them? He said, who do you, you, who do you say that I am? He wanted to know what they thought. He was trying to discern their foundation of faith. The second thing was, he was turning their focus to spiritual things. Your flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. The world didn't, can't give this to you. The world can't tell you about it. 
You see, they, like us, tend to focus on the worldly, the things we can put our hands on. He wanted them to know where their focus could be and should be. For once, he wanted them to see that a priest didn't have to tell them. But he said, Simon, the Lord's revealed this to you. He's spoken to you. The third thing is that Jesus revealing to them how much or maybe how the church is to function. How the church is to function. Gates of hell can't keep us, can't keep us out. The gates of hell can't keep its prisoner in because it will not stand the assault of the church. We'll get back to this, but his plan is for us, to, the church, to charge the gates of hell and overcome it and win the battle. Finally, Jesus discloses that his church will have the power to shape the future. Whoa! How cool is that? By extension, that means us. We do this by changing lives for time and eternity. I want you to notice those four words. Look on that screen with me. Notice those four words that are underlined. Foundation, focus, function, and future. Let's move this now from Jesus' message to his disciples back then to his message for us today. We begin with our foundation. Our foundation. Knowing, knowing how important the right foundation is for anything causes us to begin right here. Because you see, if we're not built on the right foundation, we're going to collapse. Build it on shifting sand, the winds and come, the rain comes, and you collapse. You build your life on the wrong thing, when troubles come, you'll collapse. That's why Jesus asked this question to the disciples and asked the same question to us. Who do you say that I am? Who do you really say that he is? Now, now let's be fair. Back in those days, saying who he was, calling Jesus Lord, carried a death grip with it. People would get killed for calling Jesus Lord. Today, not so much. Today, it's not as hard to say that Jesus is Lord because it's been a long time. Never in this country has anybody been killed. There's not a government chasing us down to kill us. There's not a rival police system chasing us down to eradicate us. But in this culture, who do you say that I am? Answering that question requires more than just a verbal assent. And that question, by the way, it will reveal our foundation if we answer it honestly. We love the song, The Solid Rock. Listen, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name. Why? Because on Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. What if today 
Think about your foundation. What if today the government did come and say that you could no longer worship? What if today the government took away the 501c3 designation of the church and now you would not get a tax write-off? What would that do to your commitment to give? What if today the government criminalized worship or talking about or even living for Christ? Well, Brother Jerry, that's not going to happen here. This is America. It's not going to happen here. You're just being overdramatic. Really? Really? Are you paying attention? That's, that's condescending. I don't really mean it that way. During the Christmas season, one of our families gave me a book written by a really smart guy, a researcher, a Christian guy, an apologist, a writer. Read, I've read him before, heard him before. His name's Eric Metaxas. They gave me this book entitled Letters to, Letter to the Church. Eric has done a great deal of, of work on people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German martyr, over the German church, Hitler. The opening paragraph and the introduction of that book is enough, is enough to send a cold chill down my spine. He compares the German church, that's the church of Martin Luther in the 30s to today. Let me just read you that opening paragraph. I have written this book because I am convinced the American church is at an impossibly and almost unbearable important inflection point. The parallels to where the German church, Luther's church, was in the 1930s are unavoidable and grim. So the only question is whether we might understand those parallels and thereby avoid the fatal mistake that the German mistakes the German church made during that time and their superlative catastrophic results. If we do not, I am convinced we will reap a whirlwind greater even than they than the one they did. The German church of the 1930s was silent in the face of evil. But can there be any question that the American church of our own time is guilty of the same silence? When you consider history, 1933, did you realize in 1932 that the German church was as free as the American church is today? Did you realize that in 1932 in Germany that you could preach and lead and that, and literally there was a, there was a close connection between the German church, uh, the church, the German church, Luther's church, and the government? And did you realize that with the election of one leader, Adolf Hitler, Everything changed almost overnight. You see, the very foundation of our faith, 
the very foundation of our life. And the very foundation of this church had best be nothing other than Jesus Christ. You look at our culture. I don't know if you're startled. You want to know what I think? I'll tell you what I think. Todd, I think of I think of the Wizard of Oz. We're not in Kansas anymore. We don't people all over this country are being are being persecuted for their faith. Already we see it on the news. People are being under pressure to adopt the ways of this world. And if we adopt the ways of this world, if our, we will do that if our foundation is not Jesus. And if we do that and our foundation is not Jesus, we will fail and we will accommodate the world. In Germany, 18,000 pastors. When Bonhoeffer put out his declaration, only 6,000 of 18,000 6, 18, signed it to stand against the evil of Nazi Germany. Ultimately, when push came to shove, only 3,000 actually stood firm in their faith. And I, I put this on Facebook because we need to hear it. When a company fails, people lose their jobs. When a country fails, people lose their freedom. But when a church fails, people lose their souls. We have such a great heritage in this place, on Ten Mile Creek. Brother Jerry, we've been around 150 years, and that's good. And we've done a lot of good stuff in 150 years. But I just want you to think of something. This is what God brought to my mind Friday morning. What is 150 years to God? I can tell you what it is. It's a start. It's not a finish. It's a start. There is so much ministry that needs to be done, so much that we need to do, that maybe our concepts need to be turned to Him and find where the ministry needs exist, our foundation. Man, I could stay there forever. But the second word that I had highlighted that I see in the Scripture is our focus. Our foundation must be Jesus and our focus. Now listen, God has given us this new year. He's given it to us together. He's given it with Himself. It could be the greatest year of our life. It could be the greatest year in the life of this church if we want it to be. If we want it to be. Could this be the year? Could this be the year that our motto simply becomes these two words? Honor God. Well, Brother Jerry, don't we do that? Well, do we? Just because we do good things don't mean that we try to honor God with everything. What about what would happen, Kevin? We'll keep this in front of us. What happens if every time we get ready to do something, that the one question we ask is, how does this honor God? Years ago, I heard Tom Elias say, the goal of every Christ follower is to give the world a right view of God. That right view means a correct view, a biblical view of God. 
You see, when Jesus is our foundation, and he's the only firm foundation, when Jesus is our foundation, giving people the right view of God becomes second nature because that's why Jesus came. He came to introduce us to God. You, you go through the Old Testament, all through the Old Testament, what they're concerned about? They're concerned about the name of our Lord God, Jehovah, Yahweh. What would it be like? What would it change if everything we did for the next 12 months ran through this filter of, does this really honor God? Does it really honor His wishes? Does it really honor His way? You know what we might find out? I see Lauren sit up there, and she sits up there so I can't throw a dart at her. But, but it may be that we find our new way of bringing back the upper room. It may lead us to do some things that we have never done. It may, do, it may lead us to discard some things that we're doing. If we make it center, I challenge every committee, I challenge every deacon, I challenge the staff, I challenge the Sunday school classes, that everything we do run through the filter of does it honor God or not. You see, through Jesus' shed blood, God has saved us and he's placed us in a place that so desperately needs a word from him. The exciting thing for me is, if we do this, and we try to simply honor God with everything that we do, we might develop ministries that we've never thought about. I dare say in a crowd this size, that God has put a word on somebody's heart of something we need to be doing to reach and touch and feed and help people in our area. And you've been afraid, oh, we don't have that. Well, you know why we may not have that thing that's going on in your mind? Because you haven't stepped forward. That brings us to our third one. Focus our foundation, our function. How should we function? How in the world should we function? You know what leaped out at me? I've already alluded to it. Is that here Jesus said... I will build my church and the gates of hell will not. Will not. Can you say the word not with me? Not. Will not overpower it. Hell is no rival for the church. You know what, that, you know what this means? Watch this. I want to paint you a picture. Are you listening, guys? <clears throat> hell is a fortress. And it's got a lock gate on it. And that lock gate on it is not, is so that the prisoners cannot get out and the, and the righteous cannot get in. It's locked. And the only way we get there, the only way we get in there to, re, to release the prisoners is through the blood of Jesus. That's why he died. Is to open prison gates, to open hell itself. And bring people out. Our function is to overcome, to overwhelm, to overrun those gates. And set the captives free. Now, I'm just going to tell you that everybody don't share that. Everybody don't share that. I've been around long enough to know that there are people that will go, ah, that's not really the church. That's not really what I signed for. Well, that's what Jesus died for. 
When in the world would we ever overcome, overrun, or overpower the gates of hell? Greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world, but never forget, greater is he who is in the world than you are doing it on your own. Let me make this simple and familiar. We will never overpower, overrun, overcome the gates of hell until we can admit that we can't do it on our own and we turn to God in fervent prayer. Prayer. It's not about becoming a people that prays. It's about being a praying people. It's not about being a church that prays. It's about being a praying church. It's not about prayer being your last resort. It's about prayer being your first option. It's not about you trying everything you can do and then you take it to the Lord in prayer. It's about taking it to the Lord in prayer and letting Him do what He wants to do. Do you know what... Do you know why many people don't pray? Because they don't really see their need of God. They feel like they can do it on their own. They got the money, they got the resources, they got the authority on earth, they got the power on earth, they got the ingenuity, creativity. And when we really go to the Lord in prayer, we're admitting that we're no longer self-reliant. I want to be as truthful as I can, but not mean about this. Here's what I'll tell you. Until we realize that we can't overcome the gates of hell on our own, prayer will not be an option. And we will not overcome the gates of hell until, until prayer is center place in our lives. We will not overcome the gates of hell until we really learn to worship. Brother Jerry, we've been doing this all our life. I love you more than I can say. But most of us have a concept of worship, of coming into a building, singing a few songs, wondering if we know them or not, singing a few songs, hearing a few prayers, listening to a preacher, singing an invitation hymn, and going our merry way. That's not a picture of worship from God's Word. Worship is ascribing, is giving worthiness to the object of your worship. It's an experience. It's an experience between you and Him, where you speak to Him, where you talk to Him. One of the reasons that we read the Scripture, it's a time for us to respond to Him. One of the reasons I call us to the altar is so we can respond to Him. The reason we have the altar called to the end of the service is so we can respond to 
Him. We will not overcome the gates of hell until we learn what worship is about. It's expressive. It's passionate. It's about Him. We will not overcome the gates of hell until we see the importance of evangelism. If that's a big word for you, that means bringing people to Jesus. Let me be up in your face just for a second. Many in this room have rarely gone off the creek. I'll pick on Pud because he told me till he retired he was here most of his life. And you know what that means? That means that you know people on this creek. You've known them all your life. <coughs> and you know that if the Bible is true, if they died today, that people might try to say that they got into heaven because they're good, but you know if the Bible's true that they will not make heaven. You know who they are. You have the influence in their life. And the truth is, we can't hand off that responsibility. It's ours. We will never overpower the gates of hell until we learn to pray, until we learn to worship, until we realize the importance of evangelism, until we become disciples who make disciples through our discipleship process. Well, wait a minute, Brother Jerry. What process is that? Well, we don't have one. 150 years and we don't have a process to become a disciple. Well, you got Sunday school. Well, that Sunday school is a good Bible study. It does a lot of good stuff. Uh, you used to have discipleship training, Brother Jared. Well, yeah, that was a program. It was not a process. A program of Southern Baptist where it did very little training and less discipleship. You see, discipleship, becoming a disciple is like, it's like an apprentice program where we become like Christ. And I will tell you, Brother Kevin, and I've already had multiple conversations about this and I believe in the year 2023 that we will come to that process because, listen to me, teenagers, becoming a disciple of Christ is learning how to live like him, walk like him, talk like him, make decisions like him, follow him. It will not happen until we become disciples who make disciples. It will not happen until we really understand what fellowship really is. We have a lot of good things around here that... that promotes some fellowship. But fellowship is more than dinner on the grounds and bingo once a month for the seniors. Now, I'm not criticizing those two things. We need to have dinner on the grounds, and that's bingo. If you've not missed, if you've not come, you need to come. It's fun. But it's more than that. Fellowship is, a, is, the, is the Greek word koinonia. And it means we're bound together by our belief system. We'll not overcome the gates of hell until we learn and practice and do ministry. Ministry is not about us. It's about them. Ministry is not what we do for ourselves, but we do them. Every person who trusted Christ, every person who has ever trusted Christ is a minister. It's not just your staff. And every person has a place in the kingdom where you should be ministering. Things that you should be doing. Ministry is us doing for others and expecting nothing in return. 
This is Jesus' concept. It's our function. Finally, he talked about our future. I know that some of these words may have rubbed some people the wrong way. Certainly my goal is not making people upset. At the same time, God hadn't set me here in this place to stroke egos. He called me to deliver his word and his message. And I just want to say this to you. Every Sunday when I get up, I know Brother Kevin, when you were a pastor, same thing. Every Sunday when I get up, I don't think about, did my words upset somebody? You know what's in my heart? Did my words upset Jesus? Because he's the one that called me. He's the one that placed me. He's the one I'm accountable to. Did I say it with the wrong spirit? Did I have a wrong heart? But let's face it. As you read this scripture, you can't get away that Jesus is speaking about the future. You know how I know this? I'm almost done. Hang on. He says, I'm giving you the keys. I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. By implication, he said, he's saying, and if you do it my way, if you take those keys and build a kingdom and unlock the gates of hell and open the gates of heaven, you will have the power to shape the future. Brother Jerry, we, we got 150 years. Things are going okay. Well, let me just tell you something. Is that past success doesn't mean future success. Let me just give you one. I, I did a whole study on this on 15 companies. Let me just tell you about the world that we live in. How many of you have ever heard of Blockbuster? Would you raise your hands? Most of the older. Oh, we got some of the younger guys. Blockbuster. How many of you have ever heard of Netflix? Everybody. Did you realize 20 years ago, Blockbuster had a Blockbuster store on every corner, right? That's right, every corner. Did you realize that seven years before Netflix really popped loose, that they offered to sell their concept of digital movies to Blockbuster? And do you know the response? The CEO of Blockbuster laughed at them. said, we got the market. Why do we need you? And you know today... Does anybody know how many Blockbuster stores are left in America? There's a guy that does. One. And it's in the Northwest. And do you know how many TVs that Netflix are on? It's all over the world. You see, we have the power to shape the vision and to shape the future because we hold the keys. I find it amazing that Jesus did this. What an opportunity. What possibilities. What responsibility. The key holder has access, power, and authority. If we don't like the way this world is headed, Jesus has given us the key to bind and loose both here and there.
make no mistake, a keyholder has authority and access. But a keyholder can misuse his key. The right use of the key leads to benefit. The wrong use, selfish use of the key leads to disaster. We go back. Who do you say that I am? The question is personal. I go back to that book, Letters to the Church. You'll probably hear a lot about it. I'm, I'm second time through it right now. Chapter 6 is entitled, The Spiral of Silence. I'm not going to unpack the whole thing for you. But Eric Metaxas makes this case that it was the silence of the church in the face of a satanic regime that allowed the historical atrocities to take place. What are those? You can make a case that the 135,000 Americans that died on D-Day was a result of this. You can make the case of the very fact that Hitler was in power and exterminated 6 million Jews, people, 5 million prisoners of war in two years. You can make the case of the very fact that Hitler came to power was because of the German church's silence. As bad as all these things are, let's make it personal today. In the shadow of our steeple, in the shadow of our steeple, people are dying. Fifty years ago, Rusty Goodman penned a song. We're going to hear this song, and then we're going to pray. Reach out to the people. 